Hey, we're going to be in Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39 for a couple weeks. Um, primarily because um, if you have never heard me teach Ezekiel 38 and 39 before, I do not teach it like everybody else does. Uh, like a lot of other circles um, in, uh, in prophecy do, and so I'll explain why, and we'll talk a little bit about it. But um, we'll be looking at it for a, a couple of weeks. Now remember, as we turn the corner in Ezekiel 37 forward, we're looking at God's promise of restoration and hope for the kingdom. Everything from there forward is restoration in the land, restoration of the nation, the deliverance of her enemies, the nation's enemies, um, and then from chapter 40 to 48 is all visions of the temple, which I should be able to confuse you really good when we get to there. So as we work our way through, we want to be faithful to the text. One of the things that I really try to do is not be a not be so married to my system that my system dictates what I'm reading. Our systems ought to be organized by the word, not the word organized by our system, I feel like. So so I want to allow the word to say the things that it's saying. And so we'll discuss some of those things in in chapter 38 and going on into 39 as we continue to work our way through. So here we're talking about God's guarantee over Israel from her enemies. And we're going to discuss um, an interesting set of names, Gog and Magog. And in the Old Testament, you have mention of Magog under um, in the genealogies. But, um, but there's no real consensus over time who Gog and Magog is. And there's a reason for that. And I hope I'll be able to explain that as we, as we work our way through. So we'll begin in verse 1, Ezekiel 38. Here's what he says. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So you guys know, if you were with us a few Sundays ago, we talked about uh, the issues of textual variance in the, in the text. And um, there's not really a textual variant here, but there is a question in regard to translation. Some of our Bibles will say something like he is the prince of Rosh and the prince of Meshach and the prince of Tubal. And others will say he is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And the reason that that, that, that is the way it is, because in Hebrew, um, translations are challenging. If you don't know that translations are challenging, you need to do an in-depth study of the book of Ecclesiastes, of the book of Job, of the book of Psalms, because you will come to several places where translators, frankly, have no idea what to do with it. Sometimes they transliterate, meaning they just speak the Hebrew word into English because they don't understand what's going on. 
There are things in language called hapax legamemnon. That's probably not how you say it, but you get the idea. What hapax means is this is a word only ever used one time. And they didn't have dictionaries back then. So we can't dig up a dictionary that says, how was this word used? All we can do is look at scripture and say, how, how was this word used? Here, the word is rosh. Rosh can be taken two ways, adjectival or as a noun. Either way, it should be translated, the chief prince, because both ways, adjectivally or noun, it is talking about an exalted person among exalted people. That's what the word Rosh means. It's used 600 times in the Bible, and it is never a place name. Ever. Except in the year 270 B.C.-ish when the Septuagint was translated, when the Hebrew was translated into the Greek, they used Rosh as a place name. And so when a particular uh, translator weighs heavily on the Septuagint, they will put Rosh as a place. Now, nobody knows why, and the guys in 270 B.C. are not here for us to ask. But the linguists that I have read, and I have read several, they, even the ones who say we're going to follow the Septuagint, don't know why they did it. They're, it's like they, they made some choices. And it could be because of the way they were viewing things in 270 B.C., do we know that 200 years ago we saw things different than we see them today? Anybody ever notice that? What about we use words different than we used them back then? So the same way one of the struggles trans doing translation is to understand the fluidity of language. And the, and the challenge of a translator, sometimes we think so linearly, we think, well, we just need a word-for-word -word translation. Well, that's not true. We need to understand the, why, what was he writing. We want the thought. You and I, we use idioms all the time, don't we? I mean, we overuse this one as an example, but we could say it's raining like cats and dogs. I once had friends from Russia who did not understand that phrase at all. What are you talking about? There's no cats or dogs anywhere out here. But I knew what I meant, Right? And so the same way, the same challenge arises. So when we look at, and, and this will be important in a moment, but when we look at what's laid out for us, Rosh, uh, the phrase is Nisi Rosh. Nisi is a word for prince, and Rosh is another noun that can mean head or chief. Something like exalted or higher status. So the chief prince is the best translation of what the word means and without any explanation as to why they would transliterate it as a name the the masoretic text which is the text in your old testament um, that's the way it's translated majority of the time <clears throat> so he says next set your face toward gog now over time you need to know much like words change, Gog has changed. 
Gog has been a lot of different things. In the time of the kings, a lot of people during that period of time thought Gog was Shenekarib. You guys remember Shenekarib? He was part of the Assyrian army that came against Israel, conquered Israel, and then came down to Judah, told King Hezekiah, right, no God's going to be able to save you from me. We remember? Because Shenekarib was the bad guy on the scene. Years later, Gog was Antiochus Epiphany. Have you heard of him? Or Antiochus IV? Daniel writes a lot about him. People thought, primarily Jews. I'm talking about Jews' interpretation. There was no church yet, so you have to wait for theirs. So Jews said, it's Antiochus. Antiochus is the guy. After Antiochus, it became Rome. Rome was Gog and Magog. After Rome, in the Christian era, in the 1000s, Jews believed Gog and Magog was the Crusades and that God was going to judge the Christians who were coming to the Holy Land trying to keep count of how many Jews they could get on the end of their spike. Christians have done the same thing. The latest and greatest coming around the 60s and 70s was Russia. Tell me why. Because Russia was the bad guy. One of the things we understand when we look at a period of time and the way that that prophecy is viewed in time, when I, when I see something like this happen, where, where the identity changes, it means that the names being used were not to identify a specific place. They were to identify wicked nations. Gog and Magog are going to come up again, aren't they? If you are a student of the Bible, you know we're going to read it at the end of tonight if I don't take all night. We're going to read it in Revelation chapter 20. Gog and Magog. Now, does that mean Russia? Gog and Magog, Christ sets up his kingdom and Russia is going to come against him? Really? The Bible tells us Satan will be loose for a season and there will be a rebellion and they will rise up against the king. And he will deliver the people and they will know he is the Lord. Which is exactly what we're going to read in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now does that mean that there can't be enemies who have come? You know in 1973 the Jews pronounced that Ezekiel 38 was fulfilled in the six day war. Did you know that? The Gog and Magog attacked and the Lord delivered them because there was not a lot of explanation for how they won that. And the point is not who is the exact personage of Gog and Magog. The point is God is able to deliver his people. He can deliver the righteous from the wicked. And there will be a day when God will deliver them for the last time. 
and oh, that is the overarching theme in Ezekiel 38. As, as Ezekiel lays out this word, I'm telling you that the guys, who was the bad guys at the time of Ezekiel? Babylon. Was anybody going Gog, Gog and Magog are coming? No. Who was the bad guy? Babylon. Where did Jeremiah say Babylon's going to come from? The north. You know every enemy that the prophets talked about coming against Jerusalem always comes from the north. But you know Babylon's in the east, right? They're not north of them. Because that becomes a Hebraic idiom. For this is the way the wicked come to assault the city of God. They come from the north. That doesn't mean Russia can't do it. A lot of people have done it in the past, haven't they? Lots of people have conquered Jerusalem. And sometimes when they're under judgment, God allows it. And when they're not, God delivers. Amen? But the name could be a lot of different names. You need to understand that. A lot of people make a lot of money selling you books, telling you about how we need to be careful about this alignment between Russia and this company or this country and that country and make sure you're watching. Look what's going on because this could be Gog and Magog. Well, maybe it could be, but it doesn't have to be Russia that we're going to see as we look at the names. We're going to look at those right now that these were well known to the children of Israel. So first, set your face toward Gog in the land of Magog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Bring this prophecy. You have Yahweh's conscription of Gog. Verse 3, and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you about and put, put hooks into your jaws. I will bring you out all your army, horses, horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler, shield, wielding swords. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them. All of them with shield and helmet. Gomer all, and all of his hordes. Beth Togarma from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes. Many peoples are with you. So this is an army. The Lord's going to describe it in a moment, coming to attack the nation of Israel when she dwells securely. I would make the case that has never happened yet. I would make the case that Israel will dwell securely when Mashiach is here, when the Messiah reigns, which would line up with at least our interpretation in Revelation chapter 20, right? When the land dwells securely. We'll, we'll take a look at that in just a minute. But he said, I'm going to put hooks in your jaws. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of Ezekiel, this phrase, I'm going to put hooks in your jaws, ought to sound familiar to you. Because in Ezekiel 29, in God's judgment against Egypt, we have the oracle of the nations, a lot of nations that the Lord speaks out judgment against and Oftentimes, when he speaks out judgment against these nations, there's a wider focus in the prophecy. And so he talks about a beast called Leviathan. And we spoke about Leviathan. Leviathan is like a 
ancient sea monster, a dragon, like the Chinese dragon, not like smog in The Hobbit. If you <laughs> didn't see The Hobbit, then that's not going to help you. But you get the idea, Chinese dragon, more snake-like, right? It's a picture. Uh, Leviathan in the ancient Near East was a, was a symbol, symbolic of the evil and wicked nations. It was the chaos monster. And one of the things, every epic in, in the ancient Near East, and I would probably go so far as to say around the world, has a deliverance where God delivers the world by slaying Leviathan, the chaos monster. Now we know a little more about it because Daniel's going to define all of the kingdoms of men in the book of Daniel as great beasts. First, Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a dream that they're all statues. There's a statue of gold. You guys remember? Head of gold, chest of silver. Each one indicating that the kingdoms of men have one thing in common. They degrade, which is what we see in the world still today. They're degrading. And one falls, then another falls, then another falls. That's another thing we've seen throughout history, right? Well, who are What happens to people who don't learn from history? So... Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar saw man's view of the kingdoms of men as this beautiful statue. Later on, we have God's view. Each one of those kingdoms are again uh, given in a vision to Daniel, only this time they are all beasts. What was the symbolism of all the beasts? Same. They all degrade. They get more brutal and more brutal, not less. And they collapse. They don't stand. The Bible tells us that there will be a stone that comes out of heaven, not cut with human hands. It smites the statue that Daniel saw at the feet, destroying all the kingdoms of men, and it grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. That is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will supplant all the kingdoms of men. And we have seen this cycle, this prophetic cycle, more than one time. You have Assyria conquering Israel. You have Babylon conquering Judah. You have Greece conquering Israel. You have Rome conquering Israel. And on and on it goes. So we, we, as we lay out this, these pieces, the picture, he says, I'm going to put hooks in your jaws, is that same picture from Ezekiel 29 where God grabs Leviathan by hooks throws his body out of the Nile up onto the land as a feast for all the birds. You've read that, feast for all the birds, somewhere before, haven't you? Revelation 19 and 20. This, this great battle that will take place. And so here's what we want to understand. The names of all the cities or the nations that are going to rise up against Israel in the Gog-Magog invasion. Meshech, Tubal, Gomer, Beth, Togarma. They represent the northern extreme of the world known to Israel. None of them are north of the Black Sea. And all of them can be found on a map. They are all part of what we would call Anatolia today. 
It is part of the ancient Near Eastern world. Now, there's a reason why they choose these. We'll talk about it in a moment. Then you have Paras, Kush, and Put. They're the southern extreme. So, in essence, you have four nations that encircle them from the north, three nations that encircle them from the south, just so happens to be seven nations. What do you think the symbolism is? They're all coming. They're all coming against Israel. The point is, it is the world against did anybody notice in the world today that it is the world against Christ? That the Bible would declare that Jesus Christ is our king. That this is his world, right? This world is his. Bought lock, stock, and barrel. He, he paid for it all. Revelation tells us there will be a day when an angel will drive a banner into the earth and say, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his anointed one the Christ this is his world where is the one place in this world he has put his name Israel it's got it in Israel his name Jerusalem this is the place God chose Mount Zion this is the place this is my mountain this is my this is my place and all the world coming against it is all things we're going to read in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. You're going to see the same thing there. Even the same words. Same seven nations. You're going to see a lot of the same things talked about in this place. The identity of the hosts. This is the world against God. This is the final great throes of the wicked one. In rebellion against Christ, this is the final battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You can read about it in Revelation 19 and you can read about it in Revelation 20. That God will put down, he has put down wicked armies in the past, he will put down wicked armies today, and he will once and for all defeat the final rebellion. And he will rule. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? Jesus Christ is what? Lord. He is Lord. So this is God's conscription. He puts hooks. He brings Gog. God is saying, hey, uh, you're coming. This is, this, is the, this is that last great battle. Now listen to his words to Gog and Magog. Be ready. Keep ready. You and all your hosts that are assembled about you and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be mustered. In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war. The land whose people are gathered from many peoples among, uh, upon the mountains of Israel, which had been continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely all of them you will advance coming on like a storm you will be like the cloud covering the land you and all your hordes and many peoples with you 
So here come this picture, this picture of the Lord saying, look, you're coming, you're coming like a storm, an innumerable host. That ought to sound familiar. An innumerable host coming down. But it's going to happen after many days in the latter years. It's not for today. The crew that, is, that Ezekiel's talking to, remember this is the hope of Israel. What is the hope of Israel? That the Lord will once and for all deliver you from your enemies. There will be a day. It's not today. For them, they're going to come back into the land. They're going to have battles with the, the Greek. Uh, Alexander the Great is going to come through. He won't destroy Jerusalem, but his four kings are going to divide into four empires. And uh, one of those empires is going to spend every waking moment destroying Israel over and over and over again. So much so, Israel eventually will be delivered uh, of, of, their, of their own strength, of the Lord perhaps working through the Maccabees. But they're going to reach out for help from another country called Rome. And Rome will come and defend them, move in, and they'll be there until 70 AD when there's no more nation again. So he says, after many days in the latter years, this is an expression, uh, it's actually two expressions put together, Midayim and Rabim, each meaning in a long time. So they put two of them together, in a long, long time. A long time from now. After the return of the people, they will dwell securely. Where are the people returning from? Four corners of the world. They're coming from everywhere. They're coming from around the world, back home. And they will dwell securely, Scripture tells us, describing the security offered by Yahweh when his blessings of the covenant are in operation. In Leviticus, this is how it's described. This is how dwelling securely is described. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. The grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace to the land. You shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will remove all the harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. Now, that does sound like a time the Bible talks about. But I would not use that, those phrases to describe today. If you think you can make the case that Israel dwells securely right now, you're going to have to explain to me why they have the big iron dome. You're going to have to explain to me why they have to shoot down rockets weekly, sometimes daily. You're also going to have to explain to me how we can consider this the Israel that God's talking about when upwards of 90% of them are atheists. That does not sound like God's people, does it? Will there be a day when God's people come home when eyes are open? Yes, there will be. Will there be a day when God will give them absolute peace in the land? Yes, there will be. And they will know 
They will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. There will be a day. This is the hope of Israel. God's ultimate deliverance and the fact that God makes them able to dwell securely. Look at verse 10. The motives of God. Now we know God's bringing Gog. He says, I'm putting hooks in your jaw. You're coming. But listen to the attitude or the motive of Gog. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. Ra. That's the word for evil in Hebrew. It means destructive scheme. It means a scheme full of suffering and calamity. So the people are going to come with an evil scheme. They will say, I'll go, we'll go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon a quiet people that dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls, having no bars or gates. To seize, spoil, carry off plunder, turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited. And the people who were gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth, Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to see spoil? What are you doing? So the rest of the world's going to be, what, hey, what's going on? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver or gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? What is it that the Lord says about the motives of Gog? These thoughts will come into your mind. Thoughts of it with an evil scheme to bring calamity, destruction, and suffering on an unsuspecting people. Gog is opportunistic and aggressive. And the Lord describes the people upon whom they prey as tranquil and innocent. But they will come. Verse 14, the Lord goes on. Therefore, son of man, Ezekiel, prophesy and say to God, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north. This is that Hebraic idiom. Now, a lot of times people will say, well, you keep going north. You go north far enough, you're going to hit Russia. Sort of. You sort of hit Russia. It's a little bit east. And could Russia be part of a thing? Sure they could. But I'm telling you, Gog and Magog is a focus on the wicked in rebellion against God and the final battle when God puts them down once and for all. And he feeds all the birds and all the animals of the earth on the flesh of Leviathan. The chaos beast, the final rebellion put down once and for all you and many peoples with you all of them riding on horses a great host a mighty army you will come up against my people israel like a cloud covering the land in the latter days when in the latter days i will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you O gog i vindicate my holiness before their eyes you're going to come. There's no coercion here. God's not making them do something they don't want to do. The thoughts entered their mind. God is bringing them down. 
they want to come and destroy the people. So the Lord is saying, I will bring you one last time. One last battle. An innumerable host. And the nations will all see it. They'll all know what's going on. And they will know there is no other like me. Over and over again, the prophets would say, the Lord would say, and then you will know, I am the Lord. And then you will know, I am the Lord. Look, ladies and gentlemen, the problem is not that people don't know there is a God. The problem is they do not want to submit to the God they know exists. That is the rebellion of Gog and Magog. And it's been going on a long time. Nation after nation after nation after nation. The Lord goes on. Thus says the Lord God. And are, are you he of whom I spoke of in former days? This is funny because it's the Lord saying, are you the one? Are you really the guy? Did, should I wait for another? heard that phrase before there was a day when uh, John the Baptist went to Jesus because he wasn't the Messiah he thought he would be you remember he sent guys to him and said are you the Messiah or should I look for another this is similar to that the Lord is saying to God are you are you really the bad guy is it you who have troubled all the nations oh he's going to say that to somebody else you remember who he says that to? Is it you who troubled the nations? Satan. Was it you? Really? Wow. He says to Gog, is this, is this the one? Are you the one I spoke of back then when I prophesied, when uh, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. So God's wrath is his predisposed judgment, and it's described as fire, as is his anger. So the point is, this is the day God lets loose. Oh, you should, you should recognize the language. Let's look at it. He says, my wrath will be roused in my anger and my jealousy in the blazing wrath, I declare. On that day, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. Does that not sound familiar? You ever read Revelation chapter 6 through 19? So, he says, man, everything's going to shake. They're all going to quake at my presence. The mountains will be thrown down. Have you seen that language before? The cliffs shall fall. Every wall shall tumble to the ground. And I will summon a sword against Gog. Who will? I will summon a sword against Gog. If you read the Old Testament prophets carefully, you will see on the return of Christ, he is going to walk down this long valley called the Valley of Jezreel. And when he arrives at the battleground, 
men will say to him, where have you been? And he says, I have been trampling the grapes of wrath of the Lord God Almighty alone. And he will be covered with blood. And the prophet said, the blood will run to the horse's bridle for like 180 furlongs. Does that seem right? 1,800 furlongs? I have to look. But you've heard the prophecy, right? The blood to the horse's bridle. Some say it just means it's going to be splashed. But the point is, who's fighting? Jesus. Does he need your help? No. Are you going to have to take a sword? No. It's just him. Revelation says that the sword proceeds out of his mouth. Does the Lord need to hold any kind of weapon? No. The Bible tells in Colossians that all the earth is held together by his will. All he has to do is let go. And all the pieces, they just come apart, don't they? He says, I will summon a sword against Gog on the mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. So immediately, the panic that will come on the army means they're going to start fighting each other. They're not going to want to have anything to do with the Lord God Almighty. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him torrential rain of hailstone, fire, and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations and then they will know I am the Lord. Now whenever I look through the description that is laid here, I like to and I, I don't think I'll make any comments. I just want you to hear. We've just read through Gog Magog, half of the Gog Magog um, prophecy. There's more coming in 39. It says in Revelation 20, verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. To gather them for battle. Their number will be like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had been deceived, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne. And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 
almost exactly describes what we read in Ezekiel 38. The Lord says, I will judge you. And when this is all over, fire and sulfur from heaven, the earth quakes, the mountains fall. That's all cosmic upheaval language. He says, when all this happens, then you will know. I am the Lord. Because they will stand before a great white throne. And everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will be judged by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because John chapter 5 declares that all judgment has been committed into the hands of the Son. When our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, Jude 24 and 25 tell us that Jesus Christ takes us, wraps his arm around us, and presents us to his Father faultless, blameless, covered in the blood of Christ, saved. But if our names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, then we stand before the judge. And after that day, there will be no one left who can say there is no God. Because everyone will know they've been watching him. They've been seeing him. The great hope for Israel is no matter what suffering we endure today, the future is the wicked will be destroyed and the righteous will be delivered. And we do not become righteous because of how good you are. We become righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ that is poured over all who repent and believe. Right? And then your names are written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. And he will not blot your name out. Now, a lot of other people, when we come to Ezekiel 38, they have a lot of other views. But those views will not spring forth from the text. They come out of a lot of other things. Newspapers. It gets people excited. I frankly get excited at the thought that there will be a day when Jesus Christ returns for his church. I don't need an invasion by Russia to get me excited. And the Lord has given us a job. Yes? Is it to stare at Russia and wonder when the great attack comes? Is it to try to figure out who the Antichrist is? What was our job? Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptize them, and teach them the things that Jesus taught you. And lo, I am with you, and no matter how hard it gets, there will be a day when all will be delivered. That's God's promise in Ezekiel 38. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father God, we thank you for just the opportunity to study your word, Lord. And I do pray, God, that we would be challenged in the 
views that we hold to understand where and why and how we have come to those things. Above all things, Lord Jesus, I long for your appearing. I can't wait for the day to see your face. I thank you for the promise that you can come anytime, any day, any hour, and I know you are able to deliver me. Though you may call me to walk through times that are hard, that are difficult, and I may look around and think, Lord, where are you? Your word promises me, I will never leave you or forsake you. And there will be a day, maybe tomorrow, maybe today, but there will be a day. And whatever things we suffer now, Paul would write, I do not consider this present suffering worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us the day we see our king face to face. Lord, teach us, guide us, lead us, that we might choose to live our days in ways that will honor the king, that glorify him. The words we speak, the things we do, may we choose those things that will honor you and glorify you, and may you be magnified in the land of the living until we see your face. In Jesus' name.